Welcome to episode 75 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Today concludes a trilogy of episodes with amazing super connectors as guests. I wanted to give you several examples of what's possible when you make space in your life for new connections. A homemade sauce recipe led today's guest to ignite a movement. What will inspire you to do the same in 2018? On the Schmooze is proud to be a headliner on C-Suite Radio, which is part of the C-Suite Network, a network of a half million C-level executives. Now, on to this week's show. Today's guest is known as the Empathy Strategist. He's a sought-after social influencer, executive coach, and entrepreneurial advisor whose passion lies in facilitating profound human connection in a deeply disconnected world. He is the founder and chief question asker of the 747 Club, an organization which helps elite entrepreneurs build, grow, and ignite their community. Since its inception, the 747 Club has awakened over 2,500 leaders and sparked over 210,000 relationships. He found his calling in helping individuals and teams build strong connections through authenticity, empathy, vulnerability, and safety. In a world that's starving for connection, he thrives in curating meaningful relationships. Please join me in welcoming Chris Jembra. Hey, Robbie. Thanks for having me today. Chris, thank you so much for joining me from your office in New York City. I want to just jump right in. This is a podcast about leadership and building great networks. So tell me, what does leadership mean to you? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? You know, leadership is defined as, uh, you know, the action of leading a group or an organization. And to me, my leadership capabilities came when I led a group, not necessarily an organization. I I accidentally invented pasta sauce recipe uh, in July of 2015 and decided I should probably feed it to people to see if it's even good or not. So one day I invited 15 of my friends over for dinner, fed them my sauce and, and really haven't stopped since. Having that opportunity to lead a group, even if it's just in the moment at a three-hour dinner party, helped me realize that the actions I take and the way that I empower people to be the best version of themselves is uh, my true leadership calling. It ended up being an organization where I can have a, a bigger impact on teams, employees, etc. But it just started off with realizing that, hey, if I can lead a, a group of 16 people for three hours around the dinner table, then that's, that's all I'm going to do. So those, then how would you think of leadership then? Is it, is it about empowerment? Is it getting people to take a certain action? Is it by example? Like, like how do you approach this idea of leadership then? Well, I think you just nailed you know, three of the core concepts of leadership. Um, you know, being, being a leader, as, as Simon Sinek um, says, is you know, all about finding people to believe in what you believe in. Mm. When you have a movement, when you have a why, when you have a purpose, and you share that, those words with others, you can enlist people to join in because they believe in what you believe in. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to set the right example by taking the right intention to what your beliefs are. Um, you can empower them to be part of the movement. You can enlist them to take action and become foot soldiers. And that drives the ball forward. As they say, rising tides lift all boats. Mm. So you talked a little bit, and I'm sure we'll get more into it, this idea of how you stumbled upon uh, a community that you then created and nurtured, and it's become a whole organization. But was there evidence even earlier, like childhood, high school, college, were you the type that sought out or was given leadership opportunities, or were you kind of, you know, the wallflower that no one knew? Like, where did you fall in all of that? So I was, I was definitely one of the most known people on the island, but was not necessarily the most leadership oriented person Mm. on the island. I would say that in my early years, I lacked the ability to communicate my message and the ability to inspire others to to join and take their own action. I was always put in, in leadership positions of philanthropic organizations and, and certain different, you know, sports teams. Um, but it, it was more like an elected title, not necessarily an earned mm. position. Right. Because of course people can be leaders without the title yeah. and you're saying people can have the title, but not truly be the leaders. And by Island, you're talking about Hilton head. Is that correct? South Carolina? Uh, is that where you grew up? Yeah. Hilton Head Island. Beautiful, beautiful area. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful area. So, um, Gorgeous. so that's a really interesting, uh, when do you think you started to have an aha moment that that was what was happening, that you were, you know, while you were like a leader in a title sense, you weren't actually able to motivate people into action that like, just because you had a good idea doesn't mean people were jumping to, to, you know, join you in it. Yeah. I think, I think the tipping point for me realizing my leadership potential is when I finally started building something of my own dreams of my own accord and realized that that could inspire and motivate entire movements into action. Mm. Even, even when whether it was, you know, producing Broadway plays for other people or, or leading a sports team or rallying a fan. It was everybody else's content. Mm-hmm. And so it was easy to give the content the credit and that I was just, you know, the little moving parts mm-hmm. behind the curtain. And that wasn't leadership. That was just being a producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once I translated, um, you know, once I translated that into my own my own vehicle, my own message, my own beliefs, then I guess that turned into awakening my leadership capabilities. So that kind of brings me to what you're doing now. And, and I, what I'd love to hear is what do you find most rewarding about the work you're doing today? You know, the most rewarding about the work I'm doing today is, is the simple fact that, you know, I'm living proof that our models can save the lives of individuals. Uh, Our models can then uh, save the lives of 16 total strangers around Mm -hmm. our dinner table. And that our models can then have a a positive impact on the, uh, on the revenue or time saving or life improving quality of an organization. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's what I'm most proud of is, uh, is that, I found something that saved my life and then I've had the opportunity to, to, 
you know, inspire others to join in the cause. So I find this really fascinating. I mean, you and I have talked um, prior to this call about what it is you do. And, and I, I really, I, I love the model. I, I applaud what you're working on. What I do is I talk to people about how like in this Facebook world, we've forgotten how to do FaceTime and I don't mean the app. I mean, the, the, the like eye contact, shaking hands, kind of face to face stuff. And, and we've really gotten away from that. And I grew up where, you know, you were at school all day, you came home and you called your friends on the phone, the phone that was on the wall in the kitchen yeah. and wired to the handset and talked about the day, which you just had. And so there was a lot of practice in staying connected and you met each other in person all the time and did yeah. things. And, you know, Bowling Alone named this problem 20 years ago, and it hasn't gone away, this feeling that um, we don't have that, you know, in that connection anymore, that people sort of forgotten that. Now, you're a millennial, uh, you're growing up in a world of screens. Um, you, you probably didn't have the same experience I did of coming home and running to a phone <laughs> to talk about the day. Everything's texting and everything's virtual. So fascinating that you've been able to tap into this as a need. I'm curious, who was most attracted to this work when you first got started? Before you, I mean, had a real sense of who your clients could be, who were the first people that gravitated to join you and helped you realize this is a thing people could really, I could keep replicating this over and over and over again? You know, I, I, I think it's, it, was, it was people in transition or people that felt like they were stuck. Mm. Um, you know, around our dinner table, we, we like to awaken authenticity, empathy, vulnerability, and safety. And by the, by the numbers, if less than three people cry, we actually consider it a failed night. <laughs> uh, and, but that's just, that's, that's out of love and awakening and, and, and people seeing a broader vision for their impact in this world. And, and, and one of the proudest statistics is out of the, what, 2,700 people we've served, over 60 have quit their jobs to pursue a life of passion. That's mm -hmm. what I'm most excited about. So it seems like, you know, the people that were attracted, you know, a lot in the beginning saw this as a vehicle to get unstuck and, and really wake the F up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So... Do you had that first one and it sounds like, so I, people probably don't realize this at 747 is actually a time, right? It's seven colon four seven. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've kind of, when you talk about a formula, you're, I host dinners all the time. You're like, I mean, that's part of what you do for networking, but you've got this down to like a science and you know, you, that's what you've replicated. And part of it is that everyone pitches in. So talk a little bit about, what your model has been and, and why you think that has been, I don't know, the, the evidence of, that it's working. Like what, what is it that sort of pulls people together in that way? You know, at, at our dinners, um, 6.30 PM cocktails begin 8 PM dinners serve, but at 7.47 PM, we delegate 11 specific tasks, empowering the attendees to work together to create the meal. We sit down to the table that we've all prepared together. 8.30, we pass out dessert. 8.32, I tell a joke. And 8.35, we open up for communal discussion on a particular topic. And, and, and that works so well because it's consistent, it's safe, 
people know that what they're going into is the exact same model that's proven to work 113 other times before they've arrived. Mm-hmm. That's, that's comforting. So what of that do you shift? Is it the joke the same or is the, um, is, are the questions the same, even though there's different topics, like how much of it is, is just, you know, you know, you know, and they know what to expect. Everything is the exact same, except the question at the end for that communal discussion part. Mm. That question usually follows, 85% of the time, it follows a similar concept. Uh, the act of giving tribute and thanks to someone else that we don't give enough voice to. Um, but that question can be tweaked a variety of different flavors depending on the goals and the audience and really what comes up in meditation that day. That's great. Can you give me an example of what one question might have been that really sparked a great conversation? Well, Robbie, what, what I'd like to ask you mm-hmm. is if you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, who would that be? Someone that you don't give enough voice to. As an example, I'll, I'll lead it off by just saying I'll, I'll give voice. I, I did another, I, I did a, an interview earlier today and I gave voice to this person uh, and they happened to be sitting in the same room I was. And I'd never given voice to this person. This person was always, uh, you know, he's a, a few years younger than me. And so as kids, there was a massive age difference. Eight is a lot younger than 13. Yeah. 30 is not a lot older than 23 or whatever he is. Is my little cousin, Matthew, who, who worked his butt off in school. He worked his butt off in athletics. He became the youngest person in the world to ever achieve a certain thing. And then he's devoted many hours of his day to perfecting his craft. That's inspiration. I don't mm-hmm. give enough, I don't give him enough, give him enough voice for, for the, the path that he's set down and the right intention he's had. So Robbie, if I had mm. to ask you the same thing, who would you give voice to? Well, that's such a powerful question. And I can think of so many people that have been there as I've had my own grandiose ideas of building community. And so I would actually say that uh, the person who co-founded a group called Socializing for Justice, her name is Hillary Allen, and mm. she stuck with me for two years uh, the group ran for 11 years, but those first two years were so important as we were testing out new ideas, you know, build, reflect, build, reflect, you know, start over again, like over, just, you know, creating concepts that years later, I'm writing about those concepts in my book because they're wow. proven right there that that whole like test space that I was in, right. It was just a, a whole, just a science experiment of sorts, a social experiment of sorts of what happens when you bring people together that have diverse backgrounds, but a shared vision of a just world and facilitate a space in such a way that allows them to bring that to the space to show up more. And we were able to kind of create that space. And now there's all these people who are carrying that vision with them. And uh, yeah, you know, you can't do these things by yourself. You've got to have people uh, to really help you out in that way. So Thank you, Hillary Allen, if you're listening. Yay. Uh, it's a cool question. Um, that's really neat. So what's been most challenging about either the work you're doing today or something else? Like where, where have you gotten stuck? And then 
I mean, you spoke earlier a little bit about how these dinners have really saved you. Like, and I, I think you met in a physical way and a, an emotional way as well. So like what, what's been challenging and then how did you overcome that challenge? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, just that kind of big question there. So these dinners saving me, great question, phenomenal question. These dinners saving me was not only the best thing of my life, but then the start of the next chapter of my life. And, you know, a, a friend of mine, what, what happened, you know, the tipping point at 2 a.m. on a Monday, February of 2016, I woke up in my bed bawling my eyes out, realizing for the first time in my life, I'd found complete joy and rid myself of insecurity. You know, as a, as a networker, as a connector, people like you and me and, and, and listeners to this podcast, we, we sometimes feel like we're the last one called to the party because we know so many darn groups of people. Like our invitation was lost in the mail. And I realized at 2 a.m. that one day that I didn't have to run any longer. I could focus on creating the safe spaces for people to gather. And then as Johan Hari says, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's human connection. Mm. When I realized that, I realized this saved my life. Mm-hmm. So I devoted you know, my life to it. And in the process of devoting my life to it, I lost touch with why it saved me. You know, you can't always practice what you preach. Sometimes you lose connection when you build the business around your passion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, a friend, a friend of mine walked into my office one day and said, if your 747 club was a gender, what would it be? I said, it'd be a woman. He said, if that woman walked through that door right there, how would we feel? I said, we would be overcome and consumed by the greatest maternal energy and empathy this world has ever seen. And I realized that this dinner model tapped into two of the greatest uh, deficits in our society. And those deficits were also my own. So as I grew this business and we became busier and successful and, and, and sought after, I lost connection to that own maternal energy and empathy that I secretly craved. So what I struggled with is keeping my own life afloat while building this thing to mm. serve others. And, you know, I, I, like, I just did my TED Talk on this subject, on hurricanes, addiction, and empathy. And that, you know, my desire to be around the, the chaos of the wind and the water I grew up and the maternal energy that comes in the wake of Mother Nature's destruction has been satisfied by my dinners. And then when I lost that, I had to go back out and find it again. So I regularly seek out maternal energy in my life now through Reiki energy healers, partnered meditation, cuddle therapists, Lomi Lomi masseuses. This is all to reconnect me to the maternal energy and empathy that I'm providing everybody else. It's so important that you're finding ways to replenish yourself or else the burnout that you experience means that everyone else loses this space as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, I love that you really been so conscious about what you're creating and why you're creating it. I've actually started to share more and more the last few years 
Um, I, I'm an outgoing expert. I'm seen as very, you know, confident. I'm always in the front of the room. Mm-hmm. But that feeling of not fitting in, not belonging, you know, everyone else here is best friends. I don't know anyone. I absolutely know what that feels like. And I can think of uh, moments in my early childhood where that was very real for me. Wow. So the, the, the salvage, the, the, the way to reclaim that and, and shift it is to actually be a host. By mm. hosting these events, I know that I'm welcome, but I also now have the space and opportunity to welcome others, not just mm. invite them, but welcome them. And it's funny how by doing that over and over again, it does sort of heal a space inside myself, um, but I'm also able to create that for other people. And part of the reason for saying it out loud, which I'm glad you are too, is I think other people are feeling some of that as well. Uh, and they need to know, it's like, we're not perfect at this. Like, there's a reason we're passionate. Like, I, I'm channeling it into a thing that is seen as positive. I could have as easily, right, channeled it into something, a different kind of addiction. I think, I think in some ways, building community is like this thing I have to keep doing, right? And I think you're, you're similarly going to keep finding, it might not be this forever, but, you know, we're going to be the folks in the senior homes <laughs> organizing community. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, so tell me then, I mean, gosh, this all sounds fantastic, but I also know that as you're, you're striving for success and you're reaching it, cause clearly you're having a lot of success doing this. There's a lot of common sort of concerns and fears of being wrong or making mistakes or even failing. So, what is something you're not very good at and what, and how do you deal with that? What, what are the parts of the work that aren't something that you, you, you're like, this is mine and I love doing it. I'm not good at selling or you know what? I take that back. I'm really good at selling. I'm really bad at turning a networking opportunity into a sales opportunity. Mm. Mm-hmm. That, that's it. I know what I'm selling. I'm getting in front of the right people. I know enough of the right people to keep me fed for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. But I'm really bad at turning a networking opportunity into a sales opportunity. That's Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I actually can appreciate that because I'm a speaker and I recently started doing coaching as not just a thing I sort of did, but like a bigger part of my practice. Well, that's a different kind of sales thing. And particularly when I try bringing it online, and oh, doing yeah. an online program where it wasn't about me having a conversation. I can talk to anyone on the phone and eventually get around to, do you want to work together and have an offering uh, after tons of values given, but like that sales page felt so cold, you know, and it, it's not the relationship I'm used to between me and a prospective client. Um, but yes, like thinking about all the people, you know, I, that's actually what I teach people. I work with coaches and I'm like, you actually know probably 80% of the people you need to know, but you're probably not in touch with 90% of them, Yeah, you know, because you're just not nurturing those relationships. And so part of it's just like uncovering that. I'm kind of curious, you meeting so many people and making all these great connections. And as you said, you've got a lot of great people already in your life. What are the ways you're consciously sustaining and nurturing those connections? Like, are you purposeful? Beyond, I mean, this is a dinner model, but when they're not coming to this, what are the other ways you're staying in touch? Well, my girlfriend Molly and I love to host campfire gatherings in our backyard here in New York City, s'mores and drinks (laughs) and all that kind of jazz. 
but you know what? Honestly, the, the dinners are the main ba-boom. You know, I'm fortunate enough to have, you know, a, you know, a couple client dinners per month and, and then the, you know, opportunity to open up our home to have, you know, at least one, you know, friend dinner per month. And so that allows me to see people's, you know, a group 16 people at a time. Mm-hmm. And then every couple months, we'll host a 60-person dinner or a 160-person dinner or whatever. And, you know, it's all free for the people. That's um, amazing. All because of tomato sauce, pasta sauce. All because of darn tomato sauce. <laughs> you know, uh, Chris, I don't want to forget to ask you about this, but I know that one of the, the, the highlights of the work you've done is getting a chance to host a dinner in the middle of Times Square. Hmm. I'm, I want to hear how that came to be. It's the, even though no one's seeing the visual right now, you can, you can picture it, the hustle and bustle of Times Square. And in the middle of it, there's police barricades that are wrapped around in a rectangle <laughs> shape. And there's tables down one side. And these people are coming in. And I can't actually tell if they knew each other ahead of time or walked in off the street. And there you are, you know, apron on. Like, you may, did you have a chef hat? You probably, I think you did. And you're like <laughs> making the sauce, making the pasta. So how did, how did you even come up with that vision and how did you execute it? You know, I, I've been fortunate to produce a number of events in Times Square, ranging from philanthropic things to veterans, media pieces, etc. throughout the years. And one day I was up at my buddy's office. His name is Damien. He's uh, uh, with the Times Square Alliance. And his office is, you know, way up high in a building overlooking Times Square. And we had, we had just meditated and, and I had just done a Buddha board and I was looking out his window and I said, boy, Damien, wouldn't, wouldn't that be swell to do a dinner right there in the middle of Times Square? And he said, yeah, that, that would be neat. The only problem is the city has stopped giving event permits for the rest of the year because of construction. I said, oh no. My dream is not going to come true. What are we going to do? He said, well, you know, we could always file for an, a, a film permit. I said, what? He said, yeah. <laughs> Why don't we file for a film permit and say that we're going to film a movie and that we got 16 actors and the, and the set is, you know, the tables, just like 12 Angry Men, the movie, and, and off we go. So we got a film permit. And we did the dinner and boy, oh boy, it was one of the, the calmest, uh, most communal experiences of my life. You know, mon- amongst the, the hustle and bustle, my goal was to prove that our model could make 16 complete strangers feel authentic, vulnerable, and safe on the world's biggest stage. And that's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what they, they came to do and, and they did it. How did you find those 16 uh, guests that, for that particular dinner? Just pulled people from my different networks and a mm-hmm. couple people I think I had met that previous night when I was producing a play somewhere or something. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. We had, we had a motley crew to say the least. Uh-huh. Yeah. So do, do you usually try to have your dinners have a theme when you're bringing people together or is it often eclectic in that way? You know, my, my good friend, Dara Brustein just, just interviewed me on, on that topic uh, for, a, for her wonderful article in Forbes, which, which I hope everybody reads. And in it, she quoted, she quoted my answer to that. The, the constant theme is like 
hearted energy, right? Everybody else is doing a theme with content and the and the what's what's the action plan? What's the charity we're talking about? What's the issue? What's the content? Blah blah blah, all that crap. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Focus on the people. Focus on their hearts. Focus on their souls. No one ever gives a hoot about their souls anymore. And mm-hmm. and that's that's the one constant thread. That's great. So, what would be now that you've conquered doing this uh, Times Square? What is your what's your next? Mount Everest moment <laughs> for the dinner. My next Mount Everest moment for the dinner. <laughs> um, well, you know, we, we hit, we hit one of the, we hit Kilimanjaro the other day. <laughs> uh, we, we did a dinner blindfolded. Whoa. Um, and, and so from six thirty to eight, I was blindfolded. And then it switched around from eight to nine thirty. They were blindfolded, and and why I wanted to do that was I wanted to prove that this model, if you follow the protocol, the host doesn't have to do anything. I was blind, and I was sitting on my hands, and they did all the work. And so I wanted to prove that you could re- take me out of it, and the model still sustains. Um. So that was hitting Mount Kilimanjaro. Mount Everest would be, God, what would Mount Everest be? I think Mount Everest, you know, when, when we do our, our long, you know, big client engagements, we're doing a whole year's worth of dinners for our clients. Um, you know, a, a dinner a month, a dinner every six weeks, et cetera. And so a Mount Everest would be, um, you know, any of those clients really being able to report you know, a year's worth of ROI. Mm. Um, you know, I, you know, we're, we're so new to this that we don't have a year's worth client, you know, mm-hmm. under our belt. So I can't wait for their year yeah. uh, to end so that we can look back and say, holy crap, we saved, we saved upwards of 324 hours. Yeah. It, you know, expanded their network by 180 people. We, added so much revenue to their, you know, bottom line, et cetera, et cetera. That's what my next Everest will be. That's great. So, you know, it sounds like you had some advantages early on that your parents were philanthropically engaged. They gave you a lot of opportunities to be part of that world. Uh, my background is fundraising and fundraising events and major mm. gifts. I uh, mm. uh, did that for 10, 15 years. And so there's so many skills that you acquire if you're, if you're really aware of that space that translates to what you're doing today. Um, so do you feel like you kind of had a head start about how to, how to build a really strong and supportive professional network? Cause usually I ask people, what would you tell your younger self, but both being, being 30 years old yourself and having had some of that head start, you know, what would you tell someone else maybe that was just kind of getting out of college, you know, getting into their first few uh, years in a career to to like be purposeful in how they built that network. I'm going to answer that by using Michael Roderick's great uh, gate strategy: give, ask, thank, experiment. You know, think about these people that are in your network and go give them something. Don't be afraid to ask them for something. Thank them when they do. Thank them 
and they've had a massive impact on your life and you haven't told them how much they mean to you and go, go be nutty, go experiment, go sit in your, you know, go sit in your dad's office chair for the day, go sit in your dad's, you know, uh, you know, uh, recliner for a day. Think about what life is like in, in, in their shoes, Mm. go on an experiential adventure, go listen to the feelings and perspectives of others because that knowledge will turn into wisdom. That wisdom will set you ahead in life forever. Yeah. I love that model. He's so good at, uh, coming up with, um, uh, like sort of a particular way of, of thinking about it. Um, and so it's not prescribed, but you can, you can take whoever you are and kind of put yourself into um, uh, <clears throat> that space. What, it's one of what, his specialties. What I, will, what I will answer also, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a, big, a big theater background as well. And any time that any young actors would ask me, you know, how, how to be a better actor, I would answer to them the way – a, a wonderful mentor of mine, Tony Lobianco, used to answer uh, and say to them, if you want to be a better actor, go learn how to sweep the stage. Hmm. Go learn how to do the lights. Go learn how to take out the ashtray. Get your hands dirty. You know, we're not, you know, we're, we're not nothing unless we know every dang part of it, hmm. unless we're consumed by, by learning and by knowledge uh, from multiple different perspectives. Because as David Berkus says in his book, The Myths of Creativity, it's not the expert, the linear expert that has the greatest, most creative ideas. It's the people that have the most different perspectives that come in from the outside and, and, and give their thoughts and opinions. Mm. So learn how to do everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, part of it also it sounds like if you have the, a perspective that you normally don't, uh, that's sometimes where innovation comes from. And actually brings me to a question I have. You mentioned Michael Roderick, and I asked him the similar question. It's about how you think about the diversity of your network and how, how much you put attention into having a diverse network versus how much is it, def is it a default of you having such a range mm -hmm. of interests and experiences? Like, mm -hmm. are you, even when you're constructing the 16 person dinners, as you think about who you reach out to, as you think of your closest circle of friends, is it, is there a diversity? And I don't mean just race. I mean, a range of experiences and backgrounds and whatnot. Um, is it, yeah. is there there? And is it something you've done purposely? Because I think a lot of people, the answer is it's not there. I haven't really thought about it, but I feel like mm. for you, you're so thoughtful about the way you are in the world. You know, the answer to that is yes. And where, where a great deal of that inspiration comes from is a wonderful article that was written by uh, Shannon Dunlap and Brian Uzi called How to Build Your Network. And that, in that uh, article, they, they tell the story of Paul Revere. The story of Paul Revere and William Dawes. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if the listeners have time to think about it, but have you ever heard of a man named William Dawes? <laughs> probably not but on the same night as the midnight ride of paul revere there was another fella who had the same message as paul who had the same kind of horse who had the same ferocity and they both went out at midnight one went north one went south they all knocked on doors and spread message that the war was coming but they did it in slightly different ways paul 
went out and spread his message to a diverse, non-incestuous group of people, created kind of an open, you know, uh, spreading network. William Dawes went out and marketed his message to an incestuous, non-diverse network. And so those people knew the same people and the message got nowhere. Obviously, we've heard of Paul Revere. We've never heard of William Dawes. So I advocate like what you just said, go out and, and get those diverse networks. Because when we, you know, when, when people come to the table, those aren't, those aren't the end of the train. I look at them as the connectors to their network. They're just the tip of the iceberg. Mm. You know, we have something called the, our C-Con-C-Model. C model. It's our three C's of community building. It starts with the conductor, which I'm wearing overalls in this interview. Uh, and then the people we place around our 15-person dinner table is our connectors. And then they bring us to the consumers. It's like utilizing the strength of weak ties, that warm referral through the connector to get to the client. That's how you win. Mm-hmm. That's, it's, it's like the arms of the octopus. So as many diverse networks as can be represented, the more networks I'm going into through them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm hoping that our listeners can actually conceptualize that and think about how they can amplify that in their own life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm definitely going to be staying in touch with you, Chris. <laughs> we have a lot of good people in common. I love what you're working on. I can't wait to one day visit you and be part of this experience in, in real life. Um, bring it back up here to Boston, maybe. Woo. So uh, if a year from now, we were sitting down and, and talking about all the amazing achievements you have you've had over the past year, what would we be celebrating? If we had to celebrate my achievements a year from now, I would like to say that I've built a sustainable lifestyle-oriented business that affords me the free time to not only invest mentally, spiritually, emotionally in myself, but to invest uh, more in my relationship with my girlfriend, Molly, and, and, and in the relationships with my closest friends. And, uh, you know, that we've hopefully had an impact on, uh, on, on the, the well-being and the profitability of our, our clients, partners, and, and closest teammates. That's awesome. I can't wait to have that conversation with you. <laughs> so uh, how can people find you and follow your work? Just go to 747club.org or email chris at 747club.org. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put that in. Uh, I'll find your LinkedIn, your Twitter. We'll put all that in the show notes. Chris, thank you so much for having a conversation with us. Robbie, thanks for having me. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Chris Shembra. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 75. That's also where you'll find all the links from today's episode. If you want to explore working together and learn more about what my clients experience in a mastermind or in private coaching sessions, or you'd like me to come in and present my signature Art of the Schmooze session to your staff, please send me an email 
to Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. If you enjoyed this episode with Chris Shembra, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of the shows. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your reviews on iTunes. It's easy to find our iTunes page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance, and I look forward to connecting again in a couple of weeks when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming successful leaders. Until then, happy holidays. Thanks for listening to On The Schmooze Podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On The Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.